I think a lot of this stuff we've made sense of in hindsight, and it may sound very organized when I describe it here, but at the time it was a total mess. We built this extension to create issues linked to code, and we realized that it was a way to help engineers deal with technical debt. When we started thinking about technical debt, we realized that there are different kinds of technical debt, and it's maybe different than what you traditionally hear or read out there, in that the only types of tech debt that mattered for us were whether it was small, medium, or large. And I'll explain because it feeds into our roadmap from there. My name's Alex O'Meyer. I'm the co-founder and CEO of StepSize. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today how Alex O'Meyer built a startup for your developers to document and fix issues in their code. All this and more on Code Story. Alex O'Meyer is undercover French, despite his thick British accent. He was born and raised in Paris, and though he studied business and management, he spent most of his time doing show jumping. In other words, riding horses to jump over obstacles. He moved over to the UK to join his brother, finish his master's, and get cracking on what they were going to build together. Alex, his brother, and their friend set off building software solutions. They noticed that there was a lot of data generated throughout the process, and they envisioned a future where this could be accessed to enable anyone to code. But in order to arrive at that, they realized that a tool needed to be built to access that data in a trustworthy manner. This is the creation story of StepSize. So at StepSize, we have about 10 people. We're a venture-backed company. The product we built helps software engineers document and fix issues directly in their code base. So, you know, it's in part an editor extension for VS Code and all the JetBrains editors and in the future um, all, all the other ones on the market, but also has a web app to go with it. And one of the use cases, the main one perhaps, um, is it allows engineers to turn meaningless to-do comments into actionable issues that are kept in sync with their issue trackers, so say Jira, GitHub issues or whatever it is. And at the end of the day, it helps them fight technical debt and benefit from all the good things that happen when you do so, which is to say, be more productive, to ship features faster, ship higher quality code so fewer things break, and uh, just keep the morale of the engineering team nice and high, because as I'm sure you know, no one likes to work on some ossified code base. Top engineers just want to ship cool stuff at pace, and we help them do that. We actually started from the long-term plan that is SnapSize that we discovered in 2015 with uh, my brother and my two co-founders. I, I mentioned that we'd been building other software products and through that process realized that there was a lot of data that was created as a byproduct of that software development process, whether it be the version-controlled code, the um, you know, uh, full um, description of what the code was about in the issues, uh, whether we use you know, observability tools or anything else that would allow us to measure metrics relating to the performance of the code or the quality of the code, all of this stuff. And we, uh, you know, as a bunch of data nerds, I mentioned my brother studied uh, machine learning and AI, so did Matt and uh, Jared is a mathematician as well. So 
Uh, as a bunch of data nerds, we started wondering about what you could do if you were to apply AI and machine learning to such a data set. And we quickly extrapolated this idea far, far into the future where we realized that if you had access to that data that we call contextualized code, and of course, if AI technologies kept progressing, you should, in theory, be able to build a system that would allow anyone who can read, write, and doodle to build software. And that's obviously decades down the line, but the, the plan took shape as follows. We realized, look, if you're going to justify getting access to that data, you need to build a tool that derives its value from accessing that data. You need to do so securely. You need to do so with developers in the loop to help you differentiate that data set. And that product needs to be super useful because, you know, AI for AI's sake is um, not what we're headed for here. And through many iterations of different developer tools, we landed on step size as it is today, as I was just describing it. And maybe we'll talk about that journey, but there have been many, many steps. So let's dive into the MVP. So that first product you built, how long did it take to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? We had built a broader product that, that was about helping engineering teams quantify the cost of technical debt. And it had many features, but one of the things that was really taking off was the editor integration that allowed engineers to just select any snippet of code or file or folder and just create a note on that thing, create an issue effectively. Say, hey, this thing is messed up because reasons. And we went back to our users and realized that, you know, that tiny chunk of the product was what was really valuable. We got rid of everything else and focused on building an extension in VS Code because that was the most popular editor in our user base at the time. The, the only thing that it would do was allow engineers to select a snippet of code and create an issue linked to that code. I think it must have taken us about a month max to do that, if not a couple of weeks. It's always hard to um, separate the making the decision bit and running all that kind of analysis from the let's start stripping things down and, and building what we're missing bit. But I would say about a month. And then we went back to uh, some of our existing users and found some new ones and found that we had been uh, right in doubling down on this and quickly got our first few set of customers and grew from there. Growing from there, that's an interesting segue into my next question. And so... How did you progress the product and mature it? And, and I'm curious in that, how you built your roadmap and then decided, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. I'll preface everything I say here that um, I think a lot of this stuff we've made sense of in hindsight, and it may sound very organized when I describe it here, but at the time it was a total mess, and I think it was a, a whole lot of improvising based on, uh, well, not really improvising, but just listening to what our users had to say and reading in between the lines and doubling down on this stuff. We built this extension to create issues linked to code. And we realized that it was a way to help engineers deal with technical debt and improve the state of their code base. When we started thinking about technical debt, we realized that there are different kinds of technical debt and it's maybe different than what you traditionally hear or read out there in that the only types of tech debt that mattered for us were whether it was small, medium, or large. And I'll explain because it feeds into our roadmap from there. 
a small piece of tech debt is something that you can fix right then and there in the code, right? You'll be a Boy Scout, you come across it, you fix it, keep going with your, your feature work, for example. Uh, you don't need anyone's approval, you don't need to do any kind of planning. The version of the tool that we built at the time was very good at helping engineers be Boy Scouts. But when we spoke to them, we realized that a lot of them would maintain backlogs in tools like Jira, technical backlogs, technical debt backlogs. They called them in different ways, but the idea was here's a collection of stuff that we want to improve in the code base. And the stuff they were tracking in there were what I call medium pieces of debt. It's um, these kind of technical tasks that you want to cram into a sprint. A lot of teams we spoke to had maybe some proportion of their sprint allocated to these tasks, say 10 to 30%, depending on, on their situation. In order to be able to address these pieces, these medium pieces of technical debt, they needed to have it go through their sprint planning process, right? Exactly in the same way that they would do it for feature work. And so it meant that these um, little issues that we had in the code needed to go into their issue tracker, right? That's when we built the integration with tools like Jira, GitHub, Linear, etc. It couldn't be that this information was just visible to individual contributors when they were in the code. It had to be visible to the team, maybe engineering leadership and product leadership that helped allocate the engineering capacity over the course of a given sprint. We then saw that there were the large pieces of tech debt, and these are the things that take maybe a quarter or two or even longer to deal with. They're things like upgrading to some new version of the you know, Ruby or whatever language you're using, or maybe changing to a new framework. It just, it takes more time, right? And in this case, you need to be able to identify patterns across all of the issues that you've tracked in your code base to find high leverage, big projects that will solve many issues across teams. So we went from individual developers being Boy Scouts to a single team of engineers within a broader company addressing medium pieces of tech debt through their feature development process to large pieces of debt that affect several teams of engineers, you know, different people who work on different parts of the code base and can be bundled into lo longer, larger projects that end up on your roadmap for the quarter, the year, or whatever it is. That was a big journey for us. You know, a lot of integrations, a lot of extra editors to support, a lot of features to build, and all of that stuff that I'm sure you'll appreciate. So let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? So I was very lucky that I've known my co-founders for pretty much my whole life. Um, so I'm starting with the founding team, then we'll, we'll talk about the people who joined StepSize afterwards. And, you know, one of them is my brother, Nick. The other one, Matt, went to middle school and then high school and then the same university as Nick, right? So he was um, always part of the group of friends. And then Jared, they met when they went to university, these two, Nick and Matt, going to university in the UK. We were friends and then working and building things together for a very long time. Luckily, you know, I had the, um, the non-technical background. I'm the people person out of the lot. I used to do sales and biz dev, although there was no business to develop when we started building our stuff. So I'd write the bad code that someone else would refactor later on. Uh, and each and every one of us had very complementary set of skills, even beyond you know, myself and the rest of the team. Nick is now running product at StepSize, a thing he's always had a knack and an, an, an interest in, and he's the kind of product guy who also can ship code, build all the analytics stack, stack and uh, do all of the things that you need. 
and then you've got Matt, who's uh, you know the best technologist that I know, but also very good with people. He tends to manage the larger chunk of uh, people who work at StepSize because we're mostly engineers. And then we have Jared, who is always um, interested and very good at all things design, and on top of that, technically minded. So he's our you know front end lead and, and design lead at StepSize. So that was the small unit that started building things years ago. We always tried to hire people who would really help us level up significantly in whatever area we needed help with, whether it be someone to lead growth who had experience with marketing in ways that I never had, for example, or whether it be hiring top engineers, top backend engineers who can help us deal with all the complexity that comes from being in the editor, being in the web app and integrating with all of these tools or, you know, front-end engineers, we were always looking for people who would significantly increase the the level of skill at StepSize. But I think that's kind of table stakes. Beyond that, uh, the culture at StepSize has always been very interesting and warm in a sense, because like I said, we were, we were friends before we started building things together. It took a special kind of person to want to join that gang. We used to run the company out of our house in East London, and people would come in in the morning and work out of the living room. When we started the business, we lived on top of the Chinese restaurant that Jared's parents used to run by the coast in Hastings in exchange for his help in the kitchen, you know. So it was always a really, really tight-knit group like that. So we had to find people who would be comfortable in that environment because it's not for everyone. And then I think there are some basic components of what drives a person and how independent they can be given that we're an early stage startup where you have everything to figure out and you need people to just take action. There were always things, you know, softer skills that we looked for in people. So far, all the people who did great at step size joined, were given a laptop and were told, go do the thing and then did the thing. <laughs> were able to to thrive in, in that kind of environment. So it's 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 a uh, it's not a science, um, but it's it's going well so far. Well, let's flip to scalability. So, did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or have you been fighting this as you grow? And, and some of your comments around refactoring and, and things of that nature might might indicate how you're going to answer this. But I'm going to let you run with it. We were fighting it as we grew, in the sense that. You know, when we built this MVP, we had a hypothesis about what it would be good at. That hypothesis was confirmed. We then put together a bunch of other ones and some bets worked out, others didn't at all. Uh, Obviously, being an early stage startup, we were very starved for for resources. We're lucky now that having uh, raised more funding, we have more resources, but still, that's still, you know, the mindset that we have. And so you tend to deal with problems when they become problems as opposed to uh, trying to um, optimize all that stuff too early. So that meant that, you know, if we saw that a customer was creating, putting a lot of data in step size, we would make sure that the tool would be humming along nicely and still be uh, fast and, and snappy enough. Uh, despite that amount of data being in there and we would deal with it and we would level up and we would implement the right kind of tooling that we needed the right kind of um, you know if we needed to take time to, to refactor things to rework things we we would do it uh, but always focusing on what provided value to the customer and i think you know maybe we'll talk a bit more about um, step size the product but um, we use step size at step size 
It's one of the ways in which we can identify problems in our code base that will move the needle for the company if solved, right? Because we can't boil, boil the ocean, we can't fix everything. We have to be very selective with where we put our resources and the same goes with, with maintenance and technical debt. I think people are very good at doing it for, or very good, it's still hard, but uh, people place a lot of importance on it for feature work. They don't want to build things that are useless, but I think the same goes for uh, refactoring things that don't have much of an impact in the code base. I love it that you drink your own Kool-Aid, right? That you use your own product. That's got to help a lot with building the roadmap too and knowing where the pain points are. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Technical debt is often this you know, sort of hidden risk in your code base. And if people are dealing with it, it's kind of shadow work that we're not tracking. And people have all kinds of uh, methodologies, uh, say using story points to try to reach some level of pr um, predictability in um, how engineers are going to be able to, to deliver features over the course of a sprint. They, prior to step size, never had an equivalent for that maintenance work, that technical debt work. So I think that allowing them to, in the first place, get visibility into the things that are messed up into the code base so that they can prioritize things properly and then go ahead and fix them. It sounds very simple, but it's all it takes to uh, be able to reach that level of predictability and sort of continuous improvement of your code base and therefore the productivity of your engineers, the quality of what you ship and the morale of the team. Alex, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I write in my journal every day, it's cheesy, but I want to do things I love with people I love, for people I love, and if I get to do that all day, every day, I'm on the right track. The people that we have working at StepSize make the grueling process of uh, building something out of nothing a lot more fun than it could be. We get to build the culture that we always wanted at all the companies that we, we worked at. It's um, a very complicated thing, but uh, something that I'm very proud of because it's working out so far. We're doing so helping software engineers whom we all think you know, building software is kind of the highest leverage thing that you can be doing these days. Software is everywhere. So if you can help people building software, build better software faster, it kind of sort of providing shovels in, in the gold rush and, and not just the gold rush, but really something that's lifted and and all of us and, and moved the, the world forward. So I'm just very excited about this whole thing. Let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. You know that there are some people mistakes. You hire someone for a job at an early stage company and then that job changes completely because you end up having to pivot or whatever it is. You know, you always, because they're good people that you hire, you, you try to keep them at the company and maybe they'll do this new different job, but it's not actually what they decided to join for in the first place. And they're full of goodwill and good intention. So they'll try it, but it's not actually what makes them happy. And it ends up not working out, right? Like these kinds of mistakes. So we were always very um, honest in these situations and um, tried to figure, figure something out that was right for, for the employee. Uh, at the time and, and I think we've done well on that front. We started working on step size, what, uh, seven years ago now, right? And started from a very ambitious long-term plan. There would be nothing without that first product that we built. And I think in the first few things that we built, we didn't really know what 
product market fit looked and felt like. So we built things that we were very excited about and we were getting you know, maybe positive feedback from people, but at the end of the day, if they're not buying in, in droves, then um, you, you haven't yet found the final version, you haven't yet found product market fit. And I think for a while and on a few instances, we, um, we weren't able to identify that early enough, right? So we would, we'd have spent all these resources on that product and then we'd, we'd, we'd learn a bunch of stuff. You know, you can't rewrite history and, and um, we had to do it this way to get to where we are today. But nonetheless, you wish that you'd done it faster and you'd identified that quicker and you'd learned faster and then you built the next thing faster, etc., etc. So I think I'd put my, my mistakes in these two categories. What does the future look like for StepSize the product and for your team? StepSize the product today is very much about qualitative data that you can collect about the state of your code base. It's very important because that data is actionable, right? Nonetheless, there's a whole lot of quantitative data relating to the state of your code base that uh, we will want to bring into the editor, into these issues that are linked to the code. So in the future, we'll be looking to build integrations like, you know, observability tools that help you see the performance of the code that you're looking at on top of the fact that your colleague John Smith thinks that it's messed up. Anything that contains data relevant to the code is game for us to integrate with and, and put in the editor. But following that, uh, once we've, we've built some semblance of uh, that data set of contextualized code is when you start building these AI and machine learning powered features that get a bit predictive or you start trying to automate um, little things in, in the workflow. That is still very much out there. We, you know, we don't really invest any resources in building it right now because, like I said, without step one, there's no step two. But I think these are the next projects that we have coming up for the product. We, we have a solid customer base that we're looking to grow along with revenue to come with it. We uh, raised a seed round of funding fairly recently, so we'll be building towards the next round of funding in the next 18 months or so. And that means really doubling down on the value that we provide with that product while building the, or continue building the growth engine that we've put together to get to some level of uh, predictability in how people find us and, and how they discover the value in the product and how they eventually buy it. That's, that's what's next for us. Let's just you, Alex. Who, who influences the way that you work? Name, name someone you look up to or multiple people or multiple things that you look up to and why. I'm a fairly regimented person in the sense that there are a lot of things that I know I need to do for myself to be able to show up and perform at the top of my ability. Um, and that means daily walks, daily exercise, eating well, sleeping well, all of this kind of stuff. So I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts like the uh, Andrew uh, Huberman Labs uh, show where I get to learn a lot about this. I also like to do a lot of uh, introspective work to try and uh, work on my softer skills and some of the stuff that I need to figure out as a person. So I, um, you know, like uh, it's got a bad rap, but a lot of that self-help business helps me a lot. Uh, we're a remote team of 10 people now. I'll be looking uh, to, to grow that team in uh, the, the medium to short term. And I'm always very excited about finding the right people for that team and, and integrating them in the team and making sure that they uh, do their life's best work at step size. So that's what I'm going to be focusing on.
Well, well, last question, Alex. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world and can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I think it depends on the stage at which they are. If uh, it's still just an idea, I would tell them to get started as in start building momentum. You know, you don't need to wait to have someone on your team who's got the skills that you need to build this thing. Maybe you can just acquire the skills and start building it. And you don't need to wait until you have the funding to start working on this thing. Maybe you can build a smaller version of it uh, outside hours like we were doing. And through that process, you'll build your own conviction, your own understanding of the problem. You know, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's that intrinsic motivation and belief in what you're doing that will keep you going through the inevitable ups and downs. That'd be my advice is just whenever you can, which is to say pretty much always, just build momentum and the things you need, the people you need, the resources you need will, will come. Fantastic advice. Well, Alex, thank you for being on the show today. And thank you for telling the creation story of Step Size. My pleasure. Thank you, Noah. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. Coat Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.